as you're passing them, Campbell's going to come up, make his way up here. But uh, I want to ask him a question before he starts preaching today. I want to ask, what is this news we hear about you? Can you tell us a little bit about that and maybe about... You talking about my graduation? Is that what you're talking about? Uh, no, that's not what I'm talking about. I recently got engaged. Oh, tell us about yeah. that one. Tell us about that one. Yeah, I, I got engaged to a gal named Sierra Honigman. I met her at church um, where I'm now at in Kansas City. She's finishing up nursing school and she said yes. So that's, that's all you need to know at that point. Yeah, I guess you could clap for her, not for me in that. I definitely am making out on the good end of that deal. So, all right, let's dive in, kind of set the tone here. Hope. This is a word that is often associated with this time of year, the Christmas season. It's full of hope, right? There is a new year ahead. There is the anticipation of presence. There is all of the joy that could come from what lies ahead. And yet the concept of hope has so many misconceptions. People are often left bankrupt, putting their bets in on the new fad of hope for the year. If I just do X, then I will get better. Once I get past this crazy season, life will slow down. If I change something about myself, people will like me more. All I need is a new job, a new workout, new friends, the new toy that's under the Christmas tree, and I will be happy. I will be blessed. That's what my hope is in. And I was thinking about this sermon. Several groups of people came to mind as I think about the deficiency of hope in our culture. There are different groups here. There are those who are in this room who have no hope. This season has just been salt in a wound. You're not sure if you can make it another day. This year has been really hard and you feel like the weight of the world is on you. And if that is you... Can I just tell you that I believe God has you here specifically to hear this message today, that there is hope for you, eternal hope, real hope that he offers in this very passage. Maybe an even scarier group of people in the room is that there are some of you who think you have hope, but you really don't. You are being completely and utterly deceived into a snare that will surely destroy you if you don't correct your view of hope. And redirect your hope to the correct place. Biblical hope is not like the way we use the word hope in our culture. It's not wishful thinking. It's not I just hope it will happen. It is certain. Biblical hope is final. It is as unchanging as the God who it's rooted in. Biblical hope is fixed in the character of God. Others here in this room actually have access to this treasure trove of hope, but you're neglecting to use it. Instead of placing your hope firmly in the eternal, bottomless well of hope offered in the Messiah, you are placing your hope in something that will fade tomorrow. I pray the Holy Spirit will expose false hopes that you may be clinging to through this passage, through this sermon. And to those of you who actually have this hope and are indeed clinging to it, I pray this message will stir your affections for Jesus all the more as you taste and see the goodness of God in the Son, the eternal fountain of living water. So here's the question that you must wrestle with today. What are you placing your hope in? What is the object of your hope? 
This morning, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to see that true biblical hope is only found in a promise that was kept nearly 2,000 years ago in the birth of a baby. And I encourage you, please find a copy of God's word, whether it be on your phone or or physically, and and rev it up as you make your way to Matthew, because we're going to be traversing the pages of scripture to see this story unfold a bit. But I want your eyes on these passages. I want you to see what I'm seeing. I'm not trying to convince you of something that I've come up with or fabricated. It's all in here. It's in the Bible. I want you to consider this. Before we get to Matthew 1, while you're working your way there, if you could start the New Testament with anything, the the introduction to captivate generations of people, the most exciting, most invigorating thing, the most powerful bang, what would it be? Would it be Jesus walking on water? Would it be him taking a few loaves and a few fish and multiplying it into thousands? Would it be him raising a dead man? Matthew does none of these things. And by default, God believes that the most incredible introduction that could ever be written is a genealogy, a a list of names. God thought it was the best and most powerful introduction to unveil the new covenant, for you to read and fall on your knees in awe of what God has done. But Campbell, that's that's like the part in the Bible reading plan that I skip, right? That's the part that I get to, and it's just going on and on, and -and so-and-so begets so-and-so. Oh, what a travesty that we do not know how to read genealogies of the Bible, the way they're supposed to be read. And I want to teach you, in part, how, how to do that today. And squeeze out every drop. But more than this, I want to expose the hope that is astoundingly packed into this genealogy that Matthew has constructed. I'm going to work through this passage in three chunks because that's how Matthew has structured it. There's three groups of 14. And when it's all said and done, I want you to get this dominant takeaway. True hope is only found by faith in Jesus' identity as the Messiah that God promised. That's the main point. True hope is only found by faith in Jesus' identity as the Messiah that God promised. So we're going to work through these verses, and I'm going to start in verse 1. Pray for me as I read these names. Here we go. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Amminadab. And Amminadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Ruth. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. By Rahab and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. Pardon me. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. You see, this is a genealogy. Like I said, and and Matthew starting with a genealogy means he's fixated on identity, specifically the identity of one man, Jesus. Why? Because Jesus' identity is the only rock-solid foundation for hope. And Matthew knows this. He knows that there's a difference between knowing about this person and believing and putting faith in him. You see, faith in Jesus' identity is the only thing that will save you. The only thing. To get his identity wrong means you cannot be a Christian. 
It means you cannot celebrate Christmas truly for what it is. You missed the whole point. So let's get this right. Let's hear Matthew out. We're going to look in this sermon at three aspects of Jesus' identity that reveal he is the promised Messiah. That's the outline. Three aspects of Jesus' identity that reveal he is the promised Messiah. Matthew intentionally, like I said, breaks it into three sections. So that's how I'm getting the three points. And so let's look at the first aspect. The first aspect is this. Jesus is the son of Abraham. He, he sets the stage for us at the beginning in the first verse here. He, he gives us the outline and we'll work through it. I want you to see that everything in this genealogy is completely intentional. And you'd think, how could you do that? It's just a list of names, right? Well, he's constructed it like a poem, leaving certain people in and certain people out to emphasize things, bringing in people you wouldn't expect. So, for example, something he does very intentionally is the phrase that starts this entire genealogy, even the book weaving together a tapestry of themes. And that phrase is the book of the genealogy. This points us all the way back to Genesis, if you believe it. Another way this could be translated is This is the generation, the book of the generations of Jesus Christ, or the book of Genesis of Jesus Christ. This phrase is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, which Matthew would have been using as he was constructing this genealogy. And so while he's doing this, he's seeing these things and putting it together and taking us to cue in our minds. Where else is this phrase used? Only two places, Genesis 2-4 and Genesis 5-1. Genesis 2-4 is right before, right after the creation account and right before the fall. And Genesis 5-1 is the genealogy that follows right after the fall. So we have to look back at this. And this is why I said rev up your Bibles. Turn back to Genesis 3 and, and go straight to chapter 3. And while you're turning there, let me set the stage. In the beginning, creation was perfect. There was no evil, there was no death, there was no disease. And Adam, who was created, was to defend the garden. And in what seems like no time at all, Eve is tempted by a serpent, Satan, to disobey the one rule that humanity was given by God. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or you will surely die. And that is what happened. Sin entered the world. They ate of the tree. It infiltrated and stained the generations, the genealogy of all humanity. Every man, every woman is stained with sin. You and I, we all sin. No one can escape it. And daily, daily, we don't just sin. We actively rebel against God in diving into our lusts. We devour sin like our lives depend on it for sustenance. We seek the approval of people by craving it with another like on a post that I just need or their Christmas card was better than mine. We're complaining and frustrated all year long, not trusting in God in a myriad of ways. And then you think, and I think, we have the audacity to walk up to a holy God and defend our perfection. The God of the universe, the one who can speak and turn you back into the dust he made you from. The one who knows your thoughts before you even have them. You think you're going to defend your holiness before him? Your perfection? You think you stand a chance? Newsflash, you don't. You cannot defeat a crazed grizzly bear on your own. And we're talking about a spiritual being who made every single angry bear and tornadoes and forest fires and volcanoes. That is the power 
that you can't even begin to comprehend. And that power is out to destroy you. The only hope you have is if that very same God saves you from himself. And then Genesis 3.15 rolls around. And man alive, no curse ever sounded so good. It says this in Genesis 3.15, and hopefully you found that by now. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In the midst of a rightly deserved wrath of God being declared against humanity for eternity because of our disobedience, God makes a promise of hope. It's undeserved. It's grace. There has never been greater news. This is why we call it the good news. This is the first gospel in all of scripture. In your and my helpless, pitiful rebellion, God made a way to restore us to perfection, to spend eternity with him instead of eternity in hell. That is the first gospel proclamation. That is where the hope of the world that we sing about at Christmas begins. We learn there's going to be a promised offspring, a male, he, who will bring the death blow to Satan, crush his head. That's the promised offspring. Imagine this for a second. Think about Eve, okay? She just got this promise that through her offspring, there's going to become one who will bring restoration to humanity if they have faith in this seed, right? And she has a son. Can you imagine the anticipation of that baby? The, the hope that would be there, could this be the one? And that's why Matthew connects us to Genesis 5.4. So if you flip a page over to Genesis 5.4, this is what you will see. It says this in this verse. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Adam lived were 930 years and he died. Another genealogy. And what's the pattern? Verses 5, verse 8, verse 11, verse 14, they all show the same thing. There's a person who lived, building anticipation. They talk about the son, the offspring. There is hope. And he died. And he died. And he died. And he died. This echo that is supposed to sting. It's not him yet. He's not here yet. Death got him too. Where is the Messiah? Where is this offspring? What does this have to do with Abraham? Well, Abraham is connected to the same promise, an unconditional covenant. God rooted the covenant promise in his character. So as faithful as God is, is as faithful as the promise will be. So flip a few more pages to Genesis 12, 3. And here is what you will see in this verse. Another promise, another blessing, another covenant made. And it says this in verse 3 of chapter 12 of Genesis. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is the Abrahamic covenant. And in it, through another offspring, through a he, if you look at the context of this, an offspring of Abraham, the promise of Genesis 3.15 is continued. But it has expanded. It's to all the nations. It's not just to this one line, but all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Notice that a blessing is the opposite of cursing. There is a reversal happening, an undoing of what has been done in Genesis 3 because of sin. Sin has left us hopelessly underneath a curse unless God does something to save us through this offspring. 
the death blow to death is coming. So let's jump back to Matthew 1 and and to see how all this connects to the pattern that Matthew has in his genealogy. All right, so the pattern he sets for us is X is the father of Y. X was the father of Y. Now here's a tip. In reading scripture, in reading a genealogy, look for the pattern. And when the pattern is broken, it reveals something that's trying to be emphasized, okay? So what is he trying to emphasize? Let's see how he breaks the pattern to reveal the nations that are going to be blessed, this promise of Abraham. So if we skim through, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob, Judah, and his brothers. Why include the brothers? Judah is the lineage of the Messiah. The rest of Israel should be excluded from that. But no, they're going to be included as well. This is an inclusive covenant. You keep going. And eventually you see another break in the pattern. It's by Tamar. This is a female included in this male lineage. This is absolutely wild. In this day and age, to include a woman in a genealogy would be so countercultural. And people just wreck on Christianity for not being for women. No, Christianity is absolutely for women. And in this genealogy, there is a list of females that are included who all break the pattern, four of them specifically. And these four that break the pattern show us something completely culturally wild. Matthew is showing that women are brought into the covenantal promise too on equal footing to men. The same rights to the inheritance. This is what's so crazy. But if you look closely, they're not just women, but they're people who should be outside of the Jewish people. God is keeping the Abrahamic promise to reach the nations. Look at Rahab. She was a Canaanite. Ruth, she was a Moabite. Tamar was likely a Canaanite. And Bathsheba, she married a Hittite. All of these break this pattern to show us the emphasis. God is for the nations. He's for the nations. The blessing is coming. God has always been on a global mission of restoration. There is hope for the nations. For you, you are likely a Gentile, not one of the Jewish people. God has made a way for you to have hope. If Jesus wasn't from this lineage, you and I would be hopeless left outside of the promise of the Abrahamic covenant. He must be a son of Abraham, and he is But there is more to Jesus' identity. For God's promise to hold true, we have to see a second aspect of his identity that reveals he is the promised Messiah. And that is this. Jesus is the son of David. And this we see in verses 6 through 11. Jesus is the son of David. Look with me at verse 6. It says this. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Notice the emphasis by the first breaking of the pattern here. It says David the king. There's a lot of kings in this genealogy. The only one that gets this title, the king, is David. Why? Emphasis, another covenant that we're being connected to. This is the critical one of the promised Messiah specifically, the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7. And I have a slide for this because... Getting to 2 Samuel might be tricky for you. So 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 13 says this. 
When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. There are a few things that I want you to hone in on in looking at this. The key word here is offspring, the, the same promised seed, the, the one of the Abrahamic covenant, the one of Genesis 3 in the curse promise that is there. The Abrahamic covenant that is in chapter 12, we're, we're getting more info on who this is. It's, we're getting clarity. Who is this Messiah? It's progressing the narrative. This is the eternal king. And what I need you to hear this morning is that if he is an eternal king, then the hope that he offers is eternal hope. It's not temporary, like so many things we place our hope in. And put yourselves in the shoes of the Jewish people for a moment who are receiving this letter from Matthew. There's this gap in history that exists between when the Old Testament ends and the New Testament. There's about 400 years where the prophet Malachi speaks the last words of the prophets until John the Baptist shows up. There is almost silence as though God had disappeared. Judah in this time goes into Babylonian captivity in 586 BC, which means there's no more king in Israel. The kings that they've had, gone. There's a foreign nation who actually destroyed the temple and and stomped on it and, and said, your God can't even defend his own house. And they feel that. And then they're overtaken by the Persian Empire, if that wasn't enough, from 532 BC to 332. Alexander the Great then takes over in 332, and a succession of Greek rulers follow, some of which desecrated the temple, making a mockery of the priesthood, and basically saying, your God is puny and can't stop us. Who is this God of Israel? Where is your king, Messiah? For 400 years, God is seemingly silent. The nations rage and plunder and mock the chosen people. Where is your God? Israel is left wondering, did God really keep his promise? Is there really going to be a Messiah? Where is our king? That is why Matthew adds emphasis about the deportation to Babylon when Judah was placed in captivity. That's this break in the pattern. They lost royal authority at the exile. But now it's going to be regained in an even greater king than David a greater son. This is part of the reason why the genealogy is broken into 14. It's divided at the events here to show us this pattern. There was a promised king. The throne was lost. And now it's going to be regained. Of what seems like a void of darkness, Matthew writes a genealogy shaking heavens and earth and boldly declaring, he's here, the Messiah, the king, he's here. He came, hope. We put our hope in financial security, in a career, in a family, in a dating relationship that's going to seemingly save us from hopeless singleness. If I only had blank, then I would feel secure. You probably can fill it in. I would never be worried again. No, these are temporary things. Your money can't save you from your sin. Your retirement plan can't offer you peace for eternity. What happens when you die? Even marriage is temporary until heaven. Jesus came to rule the nations as an eternal king. Imagine with me that there really was a perfect king. If Jesus is claiming to be this, 
And it's actually impossible for him to make a decision that is not the best for all of humanity. Not only that, but he actually has the power to accomplish it because he's God. And he's going to do that forever. No more wars. No more hunger. No more genocide. No more diseases or pandemics. No more dictators. No more need for health care. Because he actually has the authority over your physical body to heal you. No more sickness or death eternal life, perfection. This is what the son of David, the Messiah, can offer you. This is what he's doing. The question is, are you in his kingdom or are you his enemy? Those are the only two places you can be. Those are your only two options. You may feel safe outside of his kingdom, but let me tell you, apart from him, you have no hope. You either have a Messiah or a Messiah. You become the king of your life. Your pride, your sin. And get this, your sin is trapping you in cycles that are destroying you. It's keeping you from the flourishing that God desires for you. The flourishing which he died to offer you. And if you're not a Christian, in your sinful state, all you're doing is digging a deeper hole of reasons why God should destroy you because of your sinful rebellion. Listen closely. Every other form of hope means that you are at war with an all-powerful God. When you die, and you will, you will face a king named Jesus, and you better be a child of his and not his enemy. That is why the eternal king matters. His authority can offer you hope and protection if you have faith in the sacrifice that he died for on your behalf. Which leads me really well into the third and final aspect of Christ's identity. Almost as though Matthew was planning for this. Jesus is the son of God. This comes from verses 12 through 17. And hopefully you still have Matthew 1 open. So I'm going to read verses 12 through 17 now. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. And Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. And Abiud, the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim, the father of Azor. And Azor, the father of Zadok. And Zadok, the father of Achim. And Achim, the father of Eliud. And Eliud, the father of Eleazar. And Eleazar, the father of Mathen. And Mathen, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Okay, notice what Matthew emphasizes again by breaking the pattern. The pattern is very clear. Blank was the father of blank. We see this over and over and over. But Joseph, he's not listed as the father of Jesus. No, he's the husband of Mary. And this is really interesting. Not just this, but actually all of the verbs used in this whole genealogy so far have been active. Fathered so-and-so. Beget so-and-so. That was the son of his. He, he did this. And now it's, it's something that was received. It's a passive verb. Mary was the recipient of the birth of Christ. She didn't do anything. So who is active? Who was the father if it wasn't Joseph? God. The, the, the very verb tense is getting you to think there's someone outside of this that's acting in. We are just recipients of this. This is why Mary being a virgin matters. 
There was absolutely no possible way to doubt that Jesus was born of God as his father. Look ahead real quick to the bottom of the page of chapter one, and you see in verse 23, it says this, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. God with us? Think about how personal that is. God came to dwell among you, to be with you. The only person capable of saving you from your sin is God, to defeat the serpent and the curse, to deliver the death blow to death, to offer you life and freedom. It must be God. No other substitution would do. God would have to intervene to save you from himself. The the only other that can stand up to him or satisfy his standard of perfection is himself. Otherwise, we're doomed to God's wrath. Jesus had to be the son of God to save the nations from their sin. If he was not God, it would not be possible. So Matthew brilliantly builds into this genealogy this picture of salvation from sin. And and we just miss this. But in the names he chose, it's very clear. For instance, Jacob's name. If you remember, his name got changed to Israel. Why would we say Jacob? Matthew does this to show you that his sin that he was saved from, he, he once was a sinner named Jacob, deceiver. That's what it means. But, but God saved him from this. The, the women that in, are included in this, they're associated with massive sins. Tamar, she seduced and slept with her father disguised as a prostitute to bear a child by an incestuous relationship. Rahab, she was a prostitute who repented. Ruth, She was a Moabite, a people that came from that incestuous relationship. And she made Naomi's God her God. Bathsheba, she was a part of that adulterous relationship with David. Why bring that up with David when you're emphasizing him as king? Because look at what he has been saved from. He he murdered Uriah to get Bathsheba. But God forgave when David turned from his sin. When he turned in repentance. Even Manasseh. May not remember him, but he's like a really bad king. He, he had idolatry that he brought into the house of Yahweh. He perverted everything in every way. He was a cruel tyrant. He, he dabbled in witchcraft. He shed innocent blood. And in 2 Kings 21, it says, the innocent blood he shed spanned the full breadth of Jerusalem. Even he makes the list. Why? In the line, the lineage of the Messiah? Why? Even Manasseh, after all that he did, 2 Chronicles 33 tells us that while confined in a prison cell, he cried out to God asking for forgiveness and trusted in the Messiah and was granted forgiveness. From the beginning, God has been on mission to save his people from their sin. Without Christ, you have no hope to defeat your sin. It will beat you. When you place your faith in Christ's sacrifice, his death on the cross, it means that it has eradicated sin's power over you. The punishment for that sin is satisfied in Christ, in Jesus. And his resurrection means that he now offers you power to walk in new life. So he didn't just deal the death blow to sin, but he he rose from the dead so that you would have power to walk in obedience through his spirit now. Do you know what this means? Do you see what this lineage means? Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is the Christ. 
that word in the Greek just means Messiah. The person who can undo the curse of the son of Abraham, who has all authority to rule eternally as king over all as the son of David. And he can save any sinner at all, even Manasseh from sin, because he is the son of God. Jesus is the Messiah. And Matthew is telling you that you have to consider what your spiritual heritage is in connection to that one. That is the lineage of hope. He alone can offer you eternal hope. No one else can. This is why I think the 14 is emphasized as well. Matthew does not include every generation. He doesn't include every father. And that's okay. They do that in genealogies in this time all the time. It's the descendants, the list of descendants here. And he chooses specific ones and leaves out others to make this 14. And if you think about it, 14 is seven doubled, which means it's the complete number. Remember the days of the week, seven days, and God rested the completion. So it's doubly complete. And then it's triple emphasized, 14, 14, 14. Think of that triple emphasis, the maximum power. Remember, holy, 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 14, 14, 14. This is the complete, complete, complete Messiah, 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 promise kept, promise kept, promise kept. It's supposed to be a massive emphasis for you. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, and he is inaugurating the new covenant. He is the seed, sovereign and savior. He is the offspring, omnipotent and offering. He is the restorer, the ruler, the rescuer. He is the priest, the prince, the peacemaker. He defeats the serpent, defends the scepter, delivers the sinner. He is Jesus, the Messiah. He is your only hope. Without him, you will remain an enemy of God. In him, as his adopted son, you are an heir to the royal inheritance of eternity with God. That's the main point, right, of the whole sermon. True hope is only found by faith in Jesus' identity as the Messiah that God promised. That is the only true hope that we have. So remember the question from the beginning of the sermon, what are you really placing your hope in? Is it Jesus? This is my challenge to you. Make it Jesus. Make it the Messiah. Put your trust in Jesus, the Messiah, the son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of God. He can save you. Repent of your sin. Submit to him as your eternal king and follow him all the days of your life. Believe he will cover your sins with his perfection as God and offer you life. This is what he has accomplished for you. This is what is available to you. You see, you too can become a son of Abraham, a son of God and Christian. If Jesus is your Messiah, this is the king you serve. This is the message of hope for Christmas that you are to take to the ends of the earth, to all peoples, that they would be blessed. And this is what can be said of you. I think to how Matthew ends his book, the Great Commission, right? Take this to the ends of the world. And what does he promise? I will be with you till the end of the age. God with us, Emmanuel, the bookend of the whole book of Matthew. So this is what can be said of you. Galatians 3 And I want you to soak this in as hope for your soul. This is what Galatians says. This is what Paul wrote. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. 
and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, and you shall the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. That is the hope of Christmas. The son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of God really did come. His lineage is all in order. He really was born that men no more may die. And he really will come again. Is your hope in him? Let's pray. Lord, we are in awe of our God, in awe of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in awe of the son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of God, the lineage in order that is complete. Would you come and and dwell among us as you have promised? Would you be with those who do not know you today? Would they believe and place their faith in him? Lord, you are here. And we know this to be true. You are king, whether we choose to believe it or not. I pray that everyone in this room would know and place their hope in their eternal heritage in connection to you by faith in Christ and turning from their sin. Lord, we love you. In your name we pray, amen.